Okay, a couple of announcements for everybody before we get started and while everybody's finding their seat. A reminder that we have two events coming up September 8th through 11th. Uh, we're going to have a conference on, on Israel and then on uh, uh, October the 15th, Men's Camp Out. Also a reminder that uh, it's not too late to sign up for the Israel trip December 19th to 31st. And uh, it's going to be a great trip, things we have planned, number of new things I saw the last time I was in Israel that we will add to the itinerary. And so even if you've been before, I always try to add add new and interesting things as well as uh, perhaps some interesting uh, uh, new speakers that can come and talk about current current events. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are in uh, right relationship with the Lord, walking by the Spirit, walking according to the truth, walking in the light, so that God the Holy Spirit can use the word that is being taught tonight in our lives so that we can be challenged by it and we can be uh, rebuked or corrected if necessary, and that God would use that to uh, move us in the direction of righteousness. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then um, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that we have you to come to. We're thankful for your grace in our lives. Father, we're thankful for your grace toward this nation, even though there are uh, many in this nation who just hate you and despise you and despise the truth of your word and ignore it and are constantly in rejection and rebellion against you. And Father, we pray for those many people, whether they are uh, citizens or in government, that you would restrict and restrain their evil and that they would not be successful in their attempts to uh, attack and destroy freedom. Father, we need men and women of real integrity who will lead us in this nation and unfortunately, at this time, we don't seem to see too much of that in terms of those who are running for office. And often those who do become corrupted uh, quite quickly when they go to the uh, corrupt uh, culture that characterizes our governing bodies. And Father, we pray that that might change. We pray that you would uh, raise up men and women who have a desire to and the integrity to do the right thing and to be constitutional, and to defend our freedoms. Father, we pray for us as believers that we might do what we can do on our part, that we might uh, carry out communication with our uh, representatives and leaders, that we might be informed, that we might vote, and that we might be able to engage in profitable conversation with others, helping them to understand the truth. But above all, we know that the foundation is the Scripture, the foundation is is the is regeneration. The foundation is the work of Christ on the cross. And if that isn't the foundation for the solution to the problem, then it's just wood, hay, and straw. 
So, Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the spiritual solution as well as the immediate uh, political, uh, political and cultural uh, solutions as well. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week we came right up to it, and we're up to a verse that is very important in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23. This is a foundational verse for a lot of reasons, and I think it's one of the most insightful and challenging verses that we see uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, for uh, It is Samuel's indictment from God to Saul for his disobedience to him. And the challenge to this is that often we rationalize, we justify, we minimize disobedience to God. But this is a passage that that steps on everybody's toes. It's a passage that hits everybody right right between the eyes with the realities of disobedience, whether it's small or large, whether it's minor or major. And it is uh, uh, very important to understand it. In this indictment and announcement of punishment and judgment to uh, Saul, Samuel says in verse 23 in his explanation of why he's receiving this harsh judgment, which is the removal of the kingdom from him, Samuel says, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. The way this is set up structurally, the focal point is on that last stanza. God has rejected you from being king. The first part explains why he's not worthy to be a leader, a leader of God's people uh, anymore, because he has uh, rejected God. And so this idea of rejecting and uh, being disobedient to God is tied to a much broader category of sin, one that we often don't don't associate with that, and that is that that stubbornness, and that's not the best translation of that term. It's an unusual word in the Hebrew, as we'll see, but it probably is more of a, the meaning there is probably more of a synonym to rebellion than stubbornness is. And it both, and that, that stubbornness, or as I'll probably translate it, insubordination, is as iniquity and idolatry. Now, idolatry is not usually something that we associate with with um, uh, insubordination. But as I pointed out several times recently in our study in Matthew, is that when Israel was taken out of the land, when the nation of Israel, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, were came under the fifth cycle of discipline in the Old Testament, and God removed them through military conquest, north in 722 and the south in 586 B.C., when they returned, when the first remnant came back, uh, first under under uh, uh, Ezra, Zerubbabel, and and then Ezra and then Nehemiah, and there were several returns. There weren't just a lot of people that came back. After 70 years in Babylon, most people had become fairly comfortable, had rebuilt their lives, and most of them stayed there. You didn't have too many that came back from other areas of the diaspora. 
And when they came back, it was extremely difficult, extremely hard to rebuild er- everything. And, and um, uh, they realized that the reason they went through all of this heartache, all of the loss, the, the death of so many uh, Jews by the hands of the Assyrians and later the Babylonians was because of idolatry. At the core, it was idolatry. Now, if idolatry is is identified simply as the worship of of gods made out of stone and metal and uh, and and wood, then you you can get into a superficial concept of idolatry. And what we see here is the beginning emphasis on the fact that idolatry is more than just the worship of some stone, wood, or metal idol, but it is an attitude of the mind related to the rejection of God's authority and to disobedience. And in the first line of this stanza, which is translated fairly accurately, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Actually, it's not witchcraft. What you have in your New American Standard is closer. It's divination. That's a more accurate uh, definition. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. And so at the very beginning of this pronouncement and this explanation, what happens is that Samuel is equating rebellion or disobedience to God and rejection of God's authority to divination, to the occult, to witchcraft. And that is not something we normally think of. But as you think about this passage a little bit, one of the things that that ought to come to mind is the fact that throughout the Old and New Testament, there seems to be almost an inordinate emphasis on submission to authority and on obedience to the proper authorities. And when you come to this text out of the culture in which which has developed in the United States over the last 60 years, starting with the baby boomer generation. When you analyze that culture, it is a culture that has rejected authority. The very popular bumper sticker you'll see, just question authority, just question it on principle. And there may be some truth to that, that there is, uh, that may be a call for independent thinking in some areas, but the idea that came out of the baby boomers was challenge authority because authority is wrong. It was a rebelliousness, and you see this going back to the uh, rise of the, uh, the 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 beatnik movement in the fifties and the hippie movement in the sixties and the anti-war uh, riots that occurred during the Vietnam War, and then those same rebellious anti-authority uh, uh, baby boomers began to find jobs in government starting in the mid-70s, and now they are primary players in government, people like the Clintons and many, many others on both sides of the aisle. But uh, since the Democrat National Convention is going on this week and you see all the shenanigans going on in in, uh, Philadelphia, I think that it's just right that we pick on the Democrats uh, tonight. But but it's, it's... it's pervasive. It doesn't matter whether you're conservative or liberal. It doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat, a Republican, or a Libertarian. There is this heavy strain of rebellion against authority that has become part of the American culture. And and for this, we are coming under a lot of, of judgment because of the spiritual dimension of that rebellion. Now, 
as I look at this and we think about what is being said here, we need to think about why the Bible makes such an emphasis on submission to authority, on obedience to authority, and why it is so damning, so condemnatory of any kind of rebellion or insolence or insubordination or insurrection or schism. In fact, of the 17 works of the flesh that are listed in Galatians 5, 19 through 20, Three of them relate to rebellion. Contentions, dissensions, and heresies all relate to rebellion against uh, authority. Why does the Bible put such an emphasis on this? If you've grown up in the era of the uh, uh, neo-feminist movement since the 60s, and um, whether you were cons- you're a conservative Christian woman or not, I have found that that just the very idea we've been so so influenced by this culture that when you hear uh, the Bible taught that wives submit to your husbands, there's something uh, that happens inside that well wait a minute, this guy's not all that great to follow. Uh, why should I do that? I, I, I'm an individual person in my own right. I should do what I want to do. Why should I listen to my husband? And why should I obey him? He's got the wrong idea. You know, my idea is better. And you know what? Maybe 60, 70, 80, or even 90% of the time, you're right. But being right isn't the issue unless it's a moral right. I mean, if it has something to do with, well, I'm going to organize it this way and he wants to organize it that way. I want to do that thing. He wants to do that thing. Uh, in non-moral areas, uh, the Bible says submit, the wives submit to the husband. And there's just something that we see in women in our era that balks at that. This is why we have a lot of women who don't want to get married. Uh, They don't want to have some man in their life who's telling them what to do. But it goes much further than that. You see it in the workplace. You see it with men having problems uh, either being in authority or submitting to authority. I remember when I... um, first was in college, and I went uh, I went to college on an Army ROTC scholarship. And in ROTC, as we were studying leadership, one of the principles that was often brought out was if you, uh, if you want to be an authority, you have to learn to, to uh, follow. A good leader is a good follower, and the principle there is to be a good leader, you have to understand authority and be willing to submit to authority even, even when you disagree with authority that being able to submit to authority is is more fundamental to issues in life than almost anything else because orientation to authority says a lot about another character quality, a virtue called humility, without which we are arrogant, and arrogance is the path to self-destruction. And these virtues, these character virtues, are not taught in school anymore. They're not taught by parents anymore. We don't teach the classics anymore, um, not to mention the Bible. But if you go back and you read the classics, these character qualities are emphasized. And we don't teach the Bible anymore. So these spiritual virtues are not emphasized anymore. And so uh, you ha- it just snowballs into multiple problems. Well, what I want to do as we start and we look at this is just give you a a a sort of a 
um, a bludgeon between the ears on what the Bible says about obedience to, to authority. Uh, the ter- words obey and obedience, just those two words, not to mention all their synonyms, are used over uh, over 131 times in the Bible. Words for disobey and disobedience are used over 26 times in the Bible. But when you add other words like hear or listen, and as I've pointed out, in the Bible, when God says listen to me, he doesn't mean just have an academic, sit in an academic class and take notes and then go home and do what you want to. Listening means listen and do what I have to do, what I say to do. It implies obedience. Hear and obey is inherent in the biblical concept of listening to God. And so when you add things like hearing or not hearing or not listening, you know, we can just uh, add hundreds of verses that emphasize the importance of obedience, the, uh, the importance of doing what God says to do, doing what authorities say to do, and the extreme dangers and horrible consequences of not doing that. So what I'm going to do is go through about 10 points related to obedience. And we're going to move through these verses very quickly because my point is not for you to hear the point and write down the verses. My point is to almost dump like a garbage can of water on top of your head, like you see at the end of a football game when the coach gets a a huge 50-gallon cooler of ice water dumped over his head. Well, I want to do a dump like that, but with all these Bible verses, so when we get through, you just sit there and, and you're impressed with how much the Bible says about obeying authority, that this isn't just a side doctrine in the Scripture. It is fundamental and runs through everything from Genesis 2 because the big issue in the sin in the garden was what? Disobedience, a failure to follow God's authority and to follow uh, Eve's and then Adam's own uh, own authority. So the Bible starts, we're just going to look at, categorize this a little bit. There's an emphasis on obedience to God. James 4, 7 says that we're to submit to God. Genesis twenty two eighteen says that Abraham was blessed because he obeyed my voice, God said. Genesis 26, 5, God says, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws, and goes on to talk about that's the reason for his blessing for Abraham. In Exodus 19, 5, um, Moses, uh, God says through Moses, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. All the earth is mine, God says. In Deuteronomy twelve twenty eight, God says, Observe and obey all these words which I command you, not just some, not just the ones you agree with, but every single one. Deuteronomy thirteen four, You shall walk after the Lord your God. There's another uh, idiom or idiomatic synonym for being obedient. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. They're also told to be obedient to parents. In fact, it's so important that in Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 28, if a uh, male child that's an adolescent is doesn't respect his parents' authority, and he is a stubborn and rebellious son. Now, the word for stubborn there is not the same word we have in our passage. It's a different word, but it's it's a, a synonym. 
If a man has a stubborn, rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they have chastened him... See, it's not... Now, if the parents haven't disciplined the child and it's a small, rotten child, it doesn't say that. It's when they have chastened him. So that's part of it. They have disciplined. They have, they have been good parents and disciplined the child, and he's incorrigible. Then... What you see in verse 21, that all the men of his city shall stone him to death. So God sees this as being so serious that it's a capital offense because of the impact that that kind of rebelliousness will have on the culture. You, you surgically remove it. In the New Testament, Ephesians 6, 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Colossians 3.20, children, obey your parents. 1 Timothy 3.4, a deacon is one who, uh, or an elder is one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission. Children are to be in submission to their parents. Um, then there's the issue of slaves to their masters, and that has application and implication to employers, uh, employees to employers. Colossians 3.22, bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service. Don't just go through the motions like men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. You're obeying your boss because you fear God. You're obedient to God, not because he's a good boss, not because he's a wise boss, not because he knows what he's doing. Because You obey him when he's ignorant, stupid, idiotic, self-centered, overbearing, and tyrannical. There's no exception in here. Oh, that might apply to husbands also. Anyway, verse 18, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Titus 2.9, Exhort bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things and not answering back. Obedience, uh, then we have passages related to the wife's obedience to the husband. Ephesians 5.21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Then verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Ephesians 5.24, therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands. It's almost like God is saying, wives, look to see how you're obedient to your husband, because that's a barometer so that you can see how well you're obedient to Christ. We'll move on. That may be too convicting. Colossians 3.18, wives submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. 1 Peter 3.1, wives likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if they don't obey the word, that you, they may be won by the conduct of their wives. Uh, 1 Peter 3.5, for in this manner in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands. We're all st- supposed to submit to the authorities over us. Whether they're Democrat or Republican, whether they're corrupt or, or not corrupt, whether they're stupid, whether they're anti-constitutionalist or pro-constitutionalist, we still are obedient to the authorities. There's no asterisk here, and this is some of these are written during the time of of Nero as emperor. Some were when he was a good emperor, and some was when he was bad. Titus 3.1, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. Romans 13.1, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, uh, we all know that there are, are dis- distinctions for certain kinds of, of, uh, of legitimate disobedience 
to authority, but that's a different issue. First uh, Peter 2.13, Therefore submit yourself to every ordinance of man uh, for the Lord's sake, whether to the king is supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. Uh, we're also under point six, those uh, who represent evil do not obey God. And this is the Pharaoh who is a type of Satan. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, so why should I obey him? See, he is rebellious against God. And he's also, remember, he was a God himself under the Egyptian uh, pantheon. Uh, Point seven, at its core, sin is rebellion against God and rejection of divine authority. Romans 8, 7 says that the carnal mind is at enmity or hostile to God, for it is not subject to the law of God. That is the orientation of your sin nature. Every single one, because this is talking to Christians. It's not talking to non-Christians. It's talking to, it's reminding the Christians in Romans 8, 7, that when they're walking according to the flesh, they're just like they were as an unbeliever, and they're, the, the flesh can't submit to the law of God. It's just a life of insubordination. At the very core of our being is that nasty sin nature that is totally oriented to insubordination toward God. Romans 10.3, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. That's an indictment of Israel, specifically the, uh, the um, wilderness generation in the Old Testament. Point A, because of rebellion, Israel couldn't enter the promised land. Deuteronomy 9.23, uh, God says... Uh, uh, remind, uh, Moses says, reminding them of what happened to Kadesh Barnea, God said to go up and possess the land which I've given to you. Then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord. That's the same word for rebellion we find in our passage. You rebelled against the commandment of the Lord, and you did not believe him. See, rebellion is an indication of no faith, a lack of faith. It's when we don't believe God, we are in rebellion, and we don't obey the ninth, the final state of God's creation. So when we start with Adam and Eve in the garden and we see what happens when they rebel against God and the whole creation is affected and everything is corrupt and in in rebellion against God, there is a trajectory in God's plan that comes to resolution only when the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes back to earth to establish his kingdom, and then all things will be put in submission to him. Isn't that interesting that at the, the end game is pictured in terms of restoration of authority to God? This is one reason why you see in the book of Revelation, as God pours out his judgments on mankind again and again and again, there's this chorus in heaven that when God does this and he punishes rebellious mankind, that the choruses in heaven break out in praise to God because he is finally bringing uh, full punishment upon those who are in rebellion against him. In 1 Corinthians uh, 15.27, he's put all things under his feet. That is, the the goal is to bring all things into submission under the authority uh, of Christ. Verse 28, now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, that is the Father who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Ultimate resolution 
of everything, including the angelic conflict, means that everything is brought into submission. Uh, Hebrews 2.8, talking about, talking to God, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. That is the uh, God-man in hypostatic union. First uh, Peter 3.2, Christ went into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. They've been put under his authority. Uh, Philippians 2.10 gives us the end game that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That indicates he's the ultimate authority to the glory of God. It's all about authority. And then when Peter, point number 10, as Peter concludes his first epistle, he reemphasizes the importance of submission. And he says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you. So he starts off with the young ones, submit to the older ones. And he says, all of you, everybody, old, young, male, female, every one of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. That's what it means to submit. That's what we see in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus now humbled himself by being obedient to go to the cross. That's what humility is. So uh, all of you close yourselves with humility, uh, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So we see that uh, just as a review here, if we summarize this, all of this relates to what we've studied as the divine institutions, which give us the laws of divine establishment, that which is applied to every person, believer or unbeliever. And just to review them quickly, the first divine institution is established when God tells tells Adam that he's not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's personal responsibility, personal accountability. He is responsible to God to do what God says to do. So God is the authority in, in the first divine institution. In the second divine institution, marriage, the husband is the authority, and the man, and the woman is her is the helper, the aider, and that is not a, te- a term that demeans the woman, but elevates her uh, and compares her to the servant role that God places Himself in to serve and help mankind. The third divine institution is a family. The uh, authority in the family are the parents. The fourth divine institution is human government established in Genesis 9 by the uh, the covenant with Noah. And the uh, authority there are the governing authorities, whether it's patriarchal, whether it's tribal, whether it's clan, whether it's a a city-state or a nation. Whatever those governing authorities are, that's the authority under uh, human government. And then in Genesis chapter 11, two chapters later, see, some people think, oh, there's only four divine institutions. But you can't merge these because they're separated by a couple of hundred years in the Old Testament. So you had a period of time when you had human government, but you didn't have nations. Nations come along with the judgment on the Tower of Babel, and this is nationalism, which is now a pejorative in our culture because of the idiocy of paganism and the idiocy of progressivism and liberalism. And, uh, you know, I keep wanting to tell people like Hillary Clinton and John Kerry and all of these other people who want to have all these open border nonsense. Well, if you believe in open borders, then first of all, give us all access to everything on your servers. 
and give us access to everything in your houses, tear down that wall around your house, uh, get rid of your security system. Why don't you take the first 50 refugees to come and live in your house or houses? And then you'll come to understand why you have to have borders. It's for security and for protection. It's not because you're, you're arrogant and you're nasty and you're mean to everybody else in the world. So nationalism, God, we return again to the first point. God is the authority. Why do I say that? Because according to Acts 17.26, God is the one who set the boundaries of the nations. God is the one who establishes the nations so they're accountable uh, to him. And then the 11th point that I added is that humility is the chief virtue because it is submission to the proper authorities. Numbers 12, 3, now the man Moses was very humble, more than all the men who are on the face of the earth. Now that doesn't mean he's a walkover or a doormat or any of those uh, negative images. He ran, he kept 3 million Jews alive in the wilderness of Sinai for 40 years, and he organized them and led them, and that is not an easy task. I, I wouldn't want to lead a 100 people for 40 years through that kind of difficulty, and he led these, these three million, two and a half to 3 million Jews through, through the wilderness. And it's also true of Jesus who humbled himself, Philippians 2.8, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Okay, that's the backdrop is is that Samuel isn't saying this just because God suddenly got mad at Saul or because Samuel is mad at Saul and he's just jumping to extremes here. It has to be fit with the overall view of of reality that is expressed in the Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, that authority and submission to authority. And see, it's not it's not difficult to submit to authority if you like the person who's in charge. It's not difficult if they're telling you to do what you want to do. It's not difficult if there, there are no consequences for disobedience. You know, there, it's not difficult if, if they're giving you nice rewards at the end. So where submission comes into play is when the person in authority is not nice doesn't have your best interests at heart, doesn't care about you, is asking you to do, do things that are unpleasant, difficult, and, um, and are the last things you want to do, and you do them anyway. You do them with a smile on your face, and you do them better than anybody else. I'll tell you a little story. About almost 20 years ago now, I went up to Dallas Seminary, and I had a little conversation with uh, Dr. Walver. Dr. Walver was probably in his 80s at the time, retired, and uh, I went by to see him. I uh, had some questions for him, and so I went in there, and we sat down, and he's asking me a lot of questions about, well, what are you doing now, and what's your ministry like, and what's going on? And I told him that I was, uh, I was working for a friend of his uh, in Houston, Texas at, uh, at Baraka Church, and he said, and I, I, I said, I'm working for Bob Theme now. He said, really? He said, you know, Bob and I used to be very, very close. And, um, and I, I said, I know that. I know that. And he said, you know, Bob's wife, Betty, was the best secretary I ever had in, in my whole career. She was the best secretary I, I, I ever had. And he said, 
He said, you know, Bob was one of my elders at what was then Northwest Presbyterian Church and later it became Northwest Bible Church in Fort Worth. And for a time, um, uh, Bob Thiem was uh, stationed there at Carswell Air Force Base in Fort Worth. And he was an elder in that church. And Dr. Walbert said, one thing I always respected about Bob Thiem was I could ask him to do anything even if I knew he hated it and didn't want to do it and didn't like doing it, but I always gave it to him because he would do it 10 times better than anybody else. Now, you see, that's authority orientation. That's humility. It's when somebody asks you to do something you don't want to do, you might even disagree with the way they want you to do it or something else. You still say, yes, sir, I'll do it that way, and you do it better than anybody else. So, That lays the groundwork for the passage. Now, let me read it again. Samuel says, rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Uh, He doesn't have the verb in there. It's ellipsized. And when you leave the verb out, it emphasizes the comparison. Rebellion, the sin of witchcraft. That's the point that he is making. It's not that it's wrong to add is as the sin. It makes it more understandable, but it's punchier. In the Greek, it's more emphatic, excuse me, more emphatic in the Hebrew, rebellion, the sin of divination, actually, in the, um, in the Hebrew. So we have the first word to look at is this word for rebellion, which is the noun uh, uh, Marie, uh, which just means what, it, what it's translated to mean. It means rebellion. It means to go against a, a, a legitimate authority that's been established uh, over you. It's a word that is used numerous times uh, in the Old Testament, especially to describe the activities of of Israel when they were in the um, when they were in the wilderness. And you have a number of different things that we can say about this word. First of all, it's used about forty five times uh, in the Old Testament, and most frequently, it's used in the historic in the his, historical Psalms, that is, the Psalms that refer back to uh, events in Israel's past. Ten times it's used in the Psalms, but eight times in Deuteronomy. And in the uses in Deuteronomy, it usually refers back to the acti- actions of the uh, wilderness generation. And it generally has that idea of rebellion or re- uh, going against an authority. But in uh, some... Um, times when it's used in the hyphial stem, which is the causative stem, it means to provoke someone. So that's the basic, the basic meanings. Uh, with all but five exceptions of the word, it refers to rebellion against God. So of the 45 times it's used in the New Testament, 40 times it refers to rebellion against God. In the other examples, it refers, for example, in Deuteronomy 21, to the rebellious actions of a child against pa- parents or rebellious son. Um, it's used to refer to the wicked man in Proverbs seventeen eleven. The wicked man thinks of nothing but rebellion. Why would that be? Because he's controlled by his sin nature, and his sin nature is always oriented toward uh, toward rebellion. Now, when you examine the passages that are used, uh, the sin of rebellion may be a sin of the tongue. It may be expressed through complaining and griping and murmuring or bringing slander or gossip against someone in authority. 
And, and when it's related to God, it can be uh, represented as a verbal assault on the character of God where you're challenging or defying uh, God's command. Second, it can not only refer to a sin of the tongue, but also to a sinful act, uh, an overt act, where they are expressing actions that are expressly forbidden by God in the Mosaic law. Uh, it's also used um, a number of times uh, to, to um, uh, <clears throat> for example, in the, in the Pentateuch, in Numbers 17.10, uh, the Lord said to Moses, bring Aaron's rod back before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels. And so there it is describing those who rejected the authority of Aaron and, and Miriam. And they led, there was a rebellion among the Levites against the high priesthood of Aaron. And so in order to test that, uh, give them this, an empirical test to prove that Aaron was God's choice, they took their, their staves of dead wood and they placed them in the ark, uh, in the ark, or in the tent of the covenant. And the next morning when they got up, uh, Aaron's rod was brought back to life. That's why it's referred to as Aaron's rod that budded. It, it produced green shoots. So God took dead wood and made it alive, and that was Aaron's, and everybody else's was still dead, and that proved that God had anointed and appointed Aaron to be the high, uh, to be the high priest. Deuteronomy 31.27, God says, uh, Moses is warning the people. This is his last statement and last challenge to the people at the end of Deuteronomy. He says, for I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. How would you like that? Uh, you know, somebody you admire, somebody who's led you, and just before they die, they look at you and say, I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. Well, you haven't been real impressive. And that's how he characterizes the Israelites. Now, they're still God's chosen people. That shows the grace of God. They're rebellious and they're stiff-necked. Moses says, if today while I'm yet alive with you, you've been rebellious against the Lord, then how much more after my death? You know, I kept you under control to some degree. But after I leave, well, it'll be no hold. You'll really be rebellious. And uh, I've had some uh, experiences with that. My first church, I had a congregation that was uh, kept in check by a man who had been the pastor there. He'd been gone for 10 years and came back, married a lady in the church and was in the church. And he, um, he taught a Sunday school class, and all the, uh, half the church, all the older people in the church were in that Sunday school class. And I didn't realize it, but he kept a lid on their rebellion. They wanted somebody like a Robert Schuler or a Norman Vincent Peale to be their pastor, and they didn't want somebody who taught the Bible. And he died of a, of a heart attack about a week after Hurricane Alicia hit. And uh, when he did, uh, within six months, the church exploded in rebellion because there wasn't a governor. There wasn't somebody there to, with, to, to hold in there and check their rebelliousness. And that's what Moses is saying. As soon as I'm gone, gone boy, it's really going to be bad. We looked at Deuteronomy 21.18. A minute ago I mentioned it. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, this is a different word than the, for stubborn than we have in our passage. It's the word sarar, which is also a synonym and it means to be rebellious or to be stubborn. 
And then we have the uh, verb form of the noun in our passage. The verb form is mara. And there's some uh, just some other cross-references there. Deuteronomy uh, 21, 18, and 20. Jeremiah 5, 23. And Psalm 78, 8. Now, that helps us understand what rebellion is. Rebellion is subverting a legitimate authority over you, just being disobedient, saying, I'm not going to do what you told me to do. I want to do something else. I have a better idea. You may not be the boss, but you're going to make yourself the boss. Now, there's a comparison, implied comparison, in 1523 that rebellion, the sin of witchcraft. Now, witchcraft is probably not a good translation for this word, the Hebrew word is kerem, Q-E-R-E-M. And it's translated as divination, uh, which is the best translation. In the King James, it's translated sometimes as witchcraft, sometimes as sorcery. But divination's a broad word, and there are different kinds of um, words used for, uh, for divination. And so this is... Uh, a, a tool for trying to discover the future apart from God. We'll get into a little more specific uh, definition in, in just a minute. But this is prohibited by God. Deuteronomy 18.10, the law says, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. Now, that is one of the most horrid examples of the kind of religion and idolatry that was practiced among the Canaanite tribes that inhabited the land. It is uh, various various representative as uh, worshiping the god Moloch or the god Chemosh, uh, also Baal. Uh, There's evidence of this with the worship of the god Baal. And so the, the, this idol would be built, and there's a furnace, like a big barbecue pit, and the arms of the god would come out over that barbecue pit, and these parents would take a living child, an infant, and place that child in the arms of Moloch, and it would be burned alive. And the place where they did this was in the Valley of Hinnom, just to the south of the old city of David. And that's what is meant by uh, making your son or daughter pass through the fire. This was somehow designed to placate the God, to remove his wrath or his judgment. And this didn't happen just a little bit. This happened a lot, especially during the later years of, uh, of, of Judah. And this is one of the things that both Isaiah and Jeremiah roundly condemn uh, the Israelites for. Second Kings seventeen seventeen. Then they made their sons and their daughters passed through the fire and practiced divination and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord. So this is what is going on uh, during the time of, uh, of Ahab in the north, during the times of some of the more evil kings in the south, especially uh, uh, Menasheh or Manasseh in the south, although he turned back to God towards the end of his life. In Jeremiah 14, Jeremiah says, uh, The Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have neither sent them, nor commanded them, nor spoken to them. 
They are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds. This is one of the greatest forms of idolatry is that we generate our own ideas of the sweet and gentle Jesus, and then we go worship him. That's just idolatry. We generate our own idea of what God must be like, and then we go worship that. We don't take the time to learn the text and understand who God is as he has revealed himself and worship him. So, so divination is associated with a false vision. And uh, this can be uh, generated through many different means, but it's uh, uh, not true. It's not based on the word of God. In Ezekiel 13.6, God says, They see falsehood and lying divination who are saying the Lord declares when the Lord has not sent them, yet they hope for the fulfillment of the word. So what we have today is a vast array of televangelists, not every one of them, but many of them, those who are in the word of faith movement, those who are in a lot of the charismatic movement, those who are involved in a lot of these uh, name it and claim it and dominionist movements. Their theology is pure heresy. It is a form of idolatry and demonism because uh, it, is, it would be classified here as lying divination because uh, the Lord hasn't sent them when they say the Lord has sent them and that the Lord has revealed these things to them when the Lord hasn't revealed to them. So even though they may on occasion get the gospel right, and they may talk about all kinds of ministries and different things because the Lord has not sent them. They are the devil's disciples. Ezekiel thirteen twenty three, just like the false prophets were at the time of, of um, the time of uh, of uh, Judah, the time of I, I, um, Isaiah, the time of Jeremiah, the time of Ezekiel. Ezekiel thirteen uh, twenty three. Therefore, you women will no longer see false visions or practice divination, because once I bring judgment. That's going to end what you're doing. Um, God says, and I will deliver my people out of your hand. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So this idea of divination isn't some sort of action that is rather um, uh, rather anemic. It's not something that's just sanitized. It's not some parlor game like a Ouija board. A Ouija board is a form of divination. It's not innocuous like reading the little horoscope column in your uh, newspaper or talking about the zodiac and which sign you are and all this inanity. All of those are entry points, uh, access points to various forms of, of, of demonism. And it's all grounded in disobedience to God. What God has prohibited, we're not allowed to do. And when we violate any command... That is equivalent to divination or, or witchcraft. And then there's this parallel with stubbornness. Rebellion is parallel to the word that's translated stubbornness. And witchcraft or divination is equated through synonymous parallelism with iniquity, which means sin, and idolatry, the teraphim. We'll look at those words when we get into that second, uh, second strophe. So, what can we say about divination? Well, divination is ultimately the attempt to use various secret or occult powers to determine the future. It's the idea that man is trying to figure out the future so he can plan for it uh, apart from God. It is an intrusion 
into matters which God has hidden from us. Uh, it's interesting in the Greek, the word for divination is the word puthon. And puthon, which we would transliterate into English, is the word python. And the word python is related to the priestess who was called the oracle. An oracle is someone who gives forth a, a revelation from the, from the gods. She's called the uh, pythoness, the puthoness. She, going to her, and she would sit in an enclosed area within the temple there at Delphi, and uh, there were these vapors that came up out of the ground that have, uh, it doesn't happen anymore, but it was some kind of uh, intoxicating or hallucinogenic uh, smoke, and she would breathe that in, and she would have these, these visions, and she would speak in ecstatic utterance has a lot of implication for the tongues crowd and properly interpreting those passages in Scripture and what the problem was. They were, identify, try, they were confusing God's miraculous gift of speaking in unknown, unlearned languages with the ecstatic utterance of the, um, of the occult, the demonic, the false religions, and, and that sort of thing. So div, uh, divination also involved a lot of things where you interpreted signs or you interpreted various omens and used various objects, uh, talismans, rabbit's foots, things like that, uh, in order to predict uh, future. Forms of divination include clairvoyance, trying to tell the future, trying to get some vision of the future, which is often practiced in these charismatic groups. I spent uh, some years investigating this when I was working in my uh, on my PhD because I was investigating a lot of the, these fringe movements that were becoming mainstream in the charismatic movement. And I went out and interviewed a lady in Southern California who had been saved out of an occult background. She just, at the time, she was Hal Lindsey's sister-in-law. And uh, she had come out of a lot of this occult background and being familiar with occult practices and then going to charismatic churches, she was saying they were doing the same thing. They were just trying to camouflage it with the name of Jesus and the Bible. But she said they're do practicing the same thing, doing the same techniques. So you have clairvoyance, palm reading, astrology, uh, reading the liver of a dead animal, which is called hepatoscopy. Uh, reading the signs of cast arrows, they would take uh, they would take the arrows in the quiver and they would throw them up in the air. And then when they landed on the ground, then they would read them and forecast the future from that. That's called bilomancy. Uh, you also have necromancy, where you're consulting the dead. You're trying to have a seance. The um, uh, person uh, leading the seance is getting in touch with the dead. Most of this, a lot of this stuff has been proven to be false through lots of different investigatory techniques. Uh, I've even heard recently of someone who's reading tattoos. They don't even have a technical name for that. You know, and the sad thing is that he was a, uh, he was someone who's on, who, on whose ordination committee I once functioned, and now he is so far off the charts that you wouldn't even know he even knew what the Bible was at some point. Really sad. Advertises it on the web. He'll, for a certain amount of money, he will tell your fortune by reading your tattoos. Now, divination was specifically prohibited by the law. 
Leviticus 19.26, You shall not eat anything with the blood, nor shall you practice divination or soothsaying. Then in verse 31, Give no regard to mediums. That's another word for a witch. It's somebody who's practicing uh, getting in contact with the dead. Uh, Give no regard to mediums and familiar spirits. Do not seek after them to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. And then Leviticus 20, verse 27, A man or woman who's a medium or who has familiar spirits shall surely be put to death. This is another capital offense. Why? Because you're getting in touch with the demonic, and ultimately you're becoming Satan's disciple. So those are just some of those those basic, basic words. Now, another thing that we've seen in this country develop, <coughs> excuse me, especially over the last... 150 years is the rise of spiritism. And spiritism goes back to before the American uh, war between the states when two teenage daughters who were um, daughters of a Methodist minister began to develop a way to get in touch with the dead. They got involved with necromancy, trying to communicate with the, with the spirits. Uh, this became very popular leading up to the war between the states. Um, uh, Abraham Lincoln's wife uh, was involved in spiritism and had seances in the White House. Uh, she's not the last one uh, president's wife to have done that. Um, but eventually, a lot of these people, like the Fox sisters, admitted to the fact that it was all, all just a hoax. But for example, in 19, in 1863, during the war between the states, the National Spiritualist Association of the United States had a membership of 126,000, and by 1945, at the end of World War II, it had a membership of 228,000. And now you probably have all kinds of paranormal organizations. Just listen to some channels on talk radio about about 11 o'clock at night, and you would be amazed how many crazy nut jobs there are in this country calling in, talking about their encounters with E.T. and all of these other things. Divination was extremely popular in the ancient world as a way to determine a course of action. In Ezekiel 21.21, Ezekiel tells about the king of of Babylon, uh, probably Nebuchadnezzar, who stands at the parting of the road at the fork of two roads to use divination. He shakes the arrows, that's bellomancy. He consults the images, that's teraphim, that's the word for idolatry that we have in the second strophe of our verse. And he looks at the liver, heptomancy. So he's using all of these things to try to figure out what he should do. So the question is, why is rebellion compared to divination? Now, to understand this, we have to understand something about the angelic conflict. And that is that before man was created and before Adam fell, you have the original sin in the universe, which is the sin of, uh, of Lucifer. And I'm going to now, I want just to go to Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. I'm going to skip this uh, slide and go to the passage. Isaiah 14, 
and Ezekiel 28 are the two passages that deal with the fall of Satan. Now, it has become popular among theologians today to say that neither of these passages really talk about the fall of Satan. They uh, say that they're they're historical, they were fulfilled in the Old Testament, and that's just not true. If you read through uh, Isaiah 13 and 14, it's a judgment that's going to be pronounced upon the king of Babylon, but it's not the previous or past king of Babylon. It is the future king of Babylon, that that empire that's against God, that is uh, part of the Antichrist kingdom, that is represented in the in the book of Revelation. Uh, the mystery, the, the great harlot, uh, Babylon the Great in Revelation chapter uh, chapter 17. And so what we actually see here is not a historical reference, but a prophetic reference to the future fall of the king of Babylon, who is a type of the Antichrist. So ultimately, I think this relates to uh, the power behind the Antichrist in the tribulation. And so it's looking forward to that time. And in verse 3, it says, it shall come to pass in that day. That's talking about the future time at the end of the tribulation. The Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and hard bondage in which you were made to serve. Rest from all the horrors of the tribulation. That you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, Oh, how the oppressor has ceased, the golden city ceased. Babylon has been destroyed. He said, The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the king of Babylon, the scepter of the rulers. They all shall speak and say to you, So this taunt, now that that king has been destroyed, the, 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 he will be ridiculed. He will, there will be a taunt. Even among those who followed him will say, Well, what did you do? What happened to your power? Why couldn't you do what you, you claim to do? Uh, and these other kings that have been destroyed in the tribulation will say, You've become as weak as we are. You've become like us. Your pop is brought down to Sheol, the, the grave. And the sound of your stringed instruments, the maggot is spread under you and worms covered you, a graphic picture of the fact that he's destroyed and dead. And then we have our key passage, how you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. And that's just not an accurate translation at all. In the Hebrew, it's Hillel ben Shahar. It is the bright one, the shining one uh, of the morning. And says, how are you cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations? Now, the one who weakens the nations is the leader of Babylon, but he is empowered by somebody else. And that's ultimately the person to whom this is addressed, who is uh, the one we call Lucifer or Satan. And then there's five things he said. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the Mount of the Congregation, which is a depiction of a a rulership over the angels. On the farthest sides of the north, that is the mountain in the north, which was in Syria, which was allegedly the home of the Syrian gods and goddesses. Uh, Isaiah 14, 14, I'll ascend among the heights of the clouds. I'll be like the Most High. It is an assertion of his authority over the authority of God. So what's the original sin in the universe? It is rebellion against the authority of God. That is why rebellion and submission to authority is at the heart of human history and the angelic conflict. Because whenever we violate 
an authority, a legitimate authority over. Whenever we're disobedient to a legitimate authority over us, we are following in Satan's footsteps. We are making ourselves out to be God and the ultimate authority, and we are committing the original sin just like Satan. And and that was the sin that, that the Pharisees uh, were rebellious against God. And so what did Jesus say? You're of your father, the devil. You're living just like your father, and your lifestyle is imitating that. So that's the bottom line when we look at this. Why is this important? Why does he say that, that um, rebellion is as the sin of divination? It's that rebellion is what's at the heart of the angelic conflict. It's at the heart of the, of the uh, uh, destruction uh, of, of the harmony among the angels. Uh, when, when Satan led a third of them in rebellion against God, it's at the heart of what happened in the, uh, in the garden when Adam disobeyed God. And the only solution is to take God's solution, which is trust in Christ at the cross, the one who demonstrated what true humility and obedience was. And ultimately it's resolved when he establishes his kingdom and all authority is brought, uh, brought to submission under him. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to go through this lesson, to be reminded of the importance of submission to authority and humility, and to be reminded that in in the days to come, in many different ways, we will be challenged on how we respond to the authorities in our life. And Father, we pray that we might be mindful of this lesson and come to understand what it means to submit to authority in genuine humility and not in in reacting in arrogance. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.